Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the privilege to meet in your house on your day, the Lord's day, together with each other as part of your body here locally. And Lord, we thank you for the presence of your spirit here in this room. May we not take for granted that you would be with us and inhabit our praises, but Lord, we ask even for that, the right attitude to invite you here, that you would take jurisdiction over our thoughts, our attitudes, as we open your word here in moments that you would teach us. Lord, all of this is a privilege we don't deserve. And we ask that through the words of this song and another later that you'll remind us, but especially through your word, that you are that almighty king. Lord, may we be your humble servants. And may we sit at your feet and learn and obey. Thank you for this gathering, for your Lord's day, for your mercy and grace, for our time together. We ask all this in your name. Amen. Well, I'm also happy to greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, and to welcome each of you, whether you're in this room or gathered over live stream or visiting with us as guests. We're glad that you're here. We're going to have a baptism at the conclusion of our service, and uh, we're going to study His Word and uh, whatever fellowship we can do properly or get away with we have that as well and thank you so much for your faithfulness these times still continue to be different but we continue to adapt and learn our hard lesson never to take these things for granted until the day they're back either to the normal we used to know or normal something completely different the lord's in control and uh we'll follow him wherever he leads But uh, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, and we continue in our series through the Gospel of John, and this week we, Lord willing, will continue, or close out rather, the 14th chapter. Next week we pick up chapter 15 with the vine and the branches, but I'm going to do as usual and read through the portion of Scripture. And uh, this always is the most important part. I hope you will read along or follow along with your Bibles open. And uh, as I've heard some pastors and some of my professors say, make sure you read every last word so that whatever you say, if it's forgotten and probably will be, at least the word of the Lord was spoken. And this, of course, is the word of the Lord. And we'll read in verse 15 through the end of the chapter. This is John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. 
because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me. So that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. Let's again pray and ask for help. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Make it live to us. May we learn from it and obey what we learn. As it's just been said in the scripture we read. Lord, we're not up to this task. We need your help. So be our teacher. May we be your student. And may we take full advantage of this time together at your feet. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed there's a lot of repetition in that passage. A lot of the same words are said more than once. Almost as if maybe he lost his place and he's rereading what we just read. Or maybe John is repeating. Or maybe someone who copied John copied it down again. We don't believe that. We believe this is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And the repetition is for emphasis. To shine significance on what's being said. So let me try to highlight what we just read. A number of themes that emerge in the repetition. If you were to go back through and and just mark down in little lines, how many times their word counts, and then look at those words they represent, you, you'll see a significant pattern emerge. The first is this theme of love and obedience. And really, that's a, that's a connection between the two. There's a bond between them. Uh, the, the love is what precedes the obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. Uh, just a Highlight that and read back through. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, verse 16. Whoever keeps my commandments, he it is who loves me, verse 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, 23. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, verse 24. 
And then of Jesus, it said in verse 31, I obey the Father so that the world may know that I love Him. So our example is Jesus and His love for the Father shown by His obedience. The same is requested, commanded of us. Then there is a theme of Jesus' promises to His follower and each of them are connected one way or another, some more strongly than others, this idea of the the gift of the Holy Spirit. In here, most of them begin with the word, I will. So you have an, I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. That's the Holy Spirit. And then I will not leave you as orphans when I leave, so the Holy Spirit can come. I will come to you after I'm resurrected, but before the Holy Spirit comes. I will love Him and make myself known to Him, the one who obeys and has the Spirit and has the Son and the Father who love each other and are united together through the Holy Spirit. It gets complicated there. And then there's this peace that I leave with you, my peace I give to you as Jesus is leaving. And we'll talk about that at the end. And then if you just were being a, a, a star student looking for the gold star and, and highlighting all the repetitions as far as the names of God... There's five times the Holy Spirit is mentioned, either Helper, Spirit of Truth, or Holy Spirit. If you have a different translation, it might be Comforter, or Advocate, or Counselor. Those are all references to the Holy Spirit. There are five of those. There's ten references to the Father by His name, Father. And then there are almost 30 references to Jesus that He makes Himself, either the use of I or me. So, to say the least, this is a Trinitarian passage. You've, you've got them all here. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And at the end of this service, we'll baptize one of our own in those same three names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, for purposes of our study today, to have something to take home with us, how do we organize all this repetition well, the best way is to take these patterns and connect them to what we learned last week as this is one long, ongoing conversation. And when we have a conversation and pause it for an entire week, sometimes it's tough to get the conversation going again. So let me read to you the last three verses of the previous paragraph and then I'll show you where these things connect. That is, Jesus speaking, truly, truly. So this is important. Amen, amen, I say to you, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So the connection here is that the prospect of doing greater works than Jesus has done Jesus is leaving and he looks at his men and says, says to them, you'll do greater works than you've seen me do. That's going to require the power of the Holy Spirit. There's no other way that's going to take place. Now he has told them this helper, the comforter is coming. So there's your connection. To tell the disciples this grandiose claim, it's going to need some support. So there's that connection. And then secondly, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. And we talked last week that this is not some blank check for you to get whatever you want out of life. Hey, 
Lord said, if I ask, I can have it. There's that small part or condition known as in my name. How do you pray in, in the Lord's name? Well, that's basically saying in accordance to his will. That's this business about obedience and love. If you love me, you'll obey me. And if you love and obey the Lord, you won't use this to get what you want. <laughs> you'll use this to get what he's already promised. That is the furthering of his kingdom. And it won't work when you try to use it on yourself anyway. That's why so many Christians just think this whole Christian thing doesn't work. I never get what I ask for. Well, if it's a selfish request, it's probably not going to be granted. But if it has to do with what the Lord has, has already put into motion, the business for which he died then there's, there's no reason it's not to be granted. So that's what this is about. The two patterns here are love and obedience in order to handle that huge gift of an unlimited resource of, of answered prayer in as much as it serves the Father's business. And then this idea of the Holy Spirit that's going to help us carry on after Jesus is gone. But if, if you just want one thing to write down, if you don't get anything else from the time we spend here, the big idea of this passage is that when Jesus goes away, and he's been talking about this the entire gospel so far, when that happens, in his absence, the Holy Spirit will pick up where he left off. He will not leave his men or his followers orphans. Or without resource. That's the point of this. They are not left alone. They are not without resource. Now that's kind of. Unlike much of what we. Experience in life. As we grow up we have these ideas. And as we get older. Most of them. Do not. Turn out the way we had thought. Uh, if we took turns, we could all talk about periods of time in our life where we were alone or where we were without or where we were short. This is not just absent this man they've spent three years with, but it's absent all the things that he brought to the table, spiritually speaking. These things have been promised not to diminish. So this is unlike what we know. What, what, we do have relationships fall apart or we find ourselves without an income or without expectations met. Uh, life, if you want to look at it that way, could be a lifelong disappointment. I don't suggest that. I would much rather uh, look at this from the perspective of the one who created it all promised, hey, where it counts, you'll never do without so, having left his men with this glorious promise that they will do greater things, he immediately follows with a reminder of the ethical implications of being one of his followers. You want to hold that checkbook of the resources of heaven and the grand enterprise of the Great Commission? There's a few things that are expected of you. That you love him and that that love shakes out in obedience. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is not the price of admission. I'm watching to see if you love me, and if I don't feel that you love me, then I'm not interested in you. 
Uh, how's the verse go? We love him because he loved us first. That, that, that's how that works. We obey him and we love him because he breathed into our dead and trespasses bodies. Spiritually speaking, the new birth of life. So this really is an indication of commitment. And for those who both love and obey, that is, keep his commandments, Jesus promises, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. And we'll talk about that word another here at the end. But helper here is a description of the Holy Spirit to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus is leaving them. He's been saying it all along. They haven't seen it yet, but it's coming. But he says there will be a replacement to be with them forever and is described as the helper. Now, I'm going to make the assumption we have more than one translation of Bibles present in your laps. So that may be helper. Uh, that's probably what you'll see in the NASB or the ESV. If you have an NIV, it's likely to be advocate or could be counselor, depending on the version of the NIV you have, or the date, rather. And then the RSV has counselor. The King James Version has comforter. We've talked about this before. When we find a wide array of words used to describe one single word or combination of them in the original that John would have written down, some 2,000 years ago, what are we supposed to do with that? Because it, it, we're better Bible students than the note. Well, just fit the one you like best. We want the one John liked best, which is the one that Jesus inspired him to write. Trouble is, we don't speak Greek, so there's an exchange. And you've heard that lost in translation. Sometimes that happens. Well, when you find different versions with different words, there's one of two things possible reasons one is the greek word they're they're using to describe that is in the bible may be a real flexible word that has a lot of different meanings based on how we find it in the conversation we have words like this depending on how it fits and what you're saying it might mean one of two things might be talking about the refrigerator that cools your food or you might be talking about how nice your clothes look You'll need the rest of that sentence to decide if you're talking about style or temperature, right? Or the other idea is that the words that have been used to describe this spirit of truth have evolved over time, where the word used to mean something that now it doesn't necessarily mean. And I think it's both, but it's mostly that. Let me explain to you. The word counselor or advocate uh, really has to do with legal overtones. And we're going to see that in chapter 16 when John writes and tells us about Jesus giving us more information about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to be said to convict the world of sin on behalf of the disciples as they begin to preach. We see this take place through the book of Acts. The word goes out. People are cut to the heart. They repent in their sins and the church grows as people are saved. So you've, the idea of an advocate going out ahead makes sense. The word counselor, not so much because he doesn't sound like a defense attorney that's helping you 
uh, with your problem, but actually a prosecution. But keep in mind, the Holy Spirit has legal aspects to it. That's clearly what we see in chapter 16. What we see in this chapter is more the role of a teacher. But the Holy Spirit's not described with that word. The NIV's rendering is not wrong because that is the way the Holy Spirit acts sometimes. We just mean to make the distinction that we're not talking about a camp counselor or a marriage counselor or a guidance counselor. The Holy Spirit's a lot more than that. And then when you get to the comforter here, some translations. In Elizabethan English, that's our older translations, comforter meant to strengthen is exactly what the Holy Spirit is said to do or to aid. But right now, if I were to use that word comforter, you'd probably say which size? Twin, full, queen, king, California king. Think of it as a blanket most of the time. So that word to our modern ears isn't what it was to the people when the King James was written. The word Helper right here isn't bad either. That's a good thing to say, but we need to make sure we don't let it, the overtones of being subjective or inferior. You know, the, the CEO might have an assistant or a helper, but not the other way around, right? Well, in this way, it certainly would be the other way around. Our helper is God in this case. So when you read that, we need to know that one of these words isn't going to do it for us. We need the whole rest of the New Testament to understand what Jesus is beginning to open and unfold to these disciples here. So the emphasis here is the Holy Spirit's work as a teacher. And that's implied by the word spirit of truth. And it's explained a little bit by what he's going to say about orphans. Um, And it's going to be very clear by the time we get down to verse 26. But let's talk about the term orphan, because that needs some explaining too. There's no question that the disciples feel abandoned here. I mean, he's had two interruptions already. First by Peter, where are you going? Even if he's trying to teach them about forgiveness and uh, washing feet, he's all worried about where are you going? And then there's Philip, and Judas is going to interrupt here in just a moment. Jesus had already called them little children, right? Though they don't call him father because he calls God his father. He's actually situated more as a brother to them in that regard. But when he uses the word orphan here. If I were to ask you, technically speaking. How many living parents does an orphan have? Most of you would probably answer zero, right? You have to lose both your parents to be an orphan. That's not what the Greeks thought. And this is written in Greek. Actually, in that secular Roman culture, one parent lost is enough to be an orphan. But they also use the same word to describe disciples who lost their teacher or their master. That seems to fit real good here. So either way, he's called them his little children. The idea is, if I go away, you won't be An orphan, a student without a teacher, right? Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while in the world will not see me. You will see me. When Jesus says, I will come to you here, 
this is kind of a departure from the beginning of chapter 14 where he's talking about, I'm going away to prepare a place, many rooms, I'm going to take you there. This is really him saying, no, after my death, the Lord will raise me and I will see you before I ascend into heaven. Uh, it makes most sense um, that that's what he's speaking of. You will see me. Uh, that's not something that we saw. We weren't there. But it's something his disciples did. And this will be a huge as far as they're putting the mysteries of these things they don't yet understand. That's a big theme all through John's gospel. Disciples are confused most of the time. They're still trying to figure out what he means by all this. He's telling them, I'm going away. You will see me. And when you see me, I live, you will also live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. All of this will come together when you see me on the morning of the third day. He doesn't put it like that yet because it wouldn't make sense to them. But after the fact, it will. So verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest or make myself known to him. We don't need to miss this repetition because it's basically almost verbatim and then backward of what's already been said. John's first epistle, 1 John. And if you want to look at it, John's gospel is, this is so you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And in 1 John, it's basically you can know that you've believed. It's all about assurance of salvation. And the assurance of salvation comes in tangible ways that your life has radically changed since you believed. And love and obedience are the ones he mentions over and over and over and over again. The one that Jesus loved is the one who's on about the love of Jesus all through his writings in the New Testament. So here again, another statement as to the connection between love and obedience. This time Jesus connects it to those who will make himself known or he will make himself known to them. And that raises the third interruption that comes in verse 22. And uh, we're glad that John gives us little parentheses and editorial notes when he says Judas, not Iscariot. Judas is already gone. He's in the process of trading out his... Lord, for 30 pieces of silver. So, this is another Judas. It might even be Thaddeus. It might be who's referred to as Jude. Uh, this is one of the most least known of, of the 11 now, not the 12. He says to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself or make yourself known to us, but not the world? This is another point of confusion with Jesus' men and all the rest of the Jews, really, as to what Jesus is going to do and what they expected of him. Uh, like any good Jew, Jude or Judas expected the Messiah to stand in all his glory before mankind. What good is a Messiah who spends three years with 12 men, loses one, goes away, disappears, and then never shows himself to anybody? That, that's what this guy and the rest of the disciples are thinking. Uh, we, th we thought 
this was going to be you know, all that stuff that David talked about and then Solomon and never ceased to have a king on the throne. And then we messed all that up and we've been looking for the Messiah since and all the prophecies point to it. And now we think you're the one. You've said you're the one. We've confessed that you're the son of God and now this is all over. So you can understand that let not your hearts be troubled. I am going away. I'll give you a comforter. You won't be left as orphans. He's trying to explain to them and settle them down. But this question here is a good question. How does the world know the name of God if the Messiah is invisible to them? Is, is the question. And interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't answer it. He starts where he left off. If you look at verse 25, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you or open to you all the things that I've said. So even though we've got Jude here with a question that seems isn't answered directly, indirectly, it's all here. I'll explain to you what 25 and 26 mean. These verses are all about hearing and remembering what Jesus had previously poured into the lives of these 11 men and their subsequent ability to record it all for the rest of history, including giving us something to talk about today. Now, John's done a good job of telling us these disciples haven't understood much of what Jesus has said. And he has been careful to tell us they have failed at many of the points where they needed to see something as Jesus had explained it, and they failed. So how are these guys going to write the New Testament without some help? That's verse 26. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. You want to know how you got your Bibles? By the work of the Holy Spirit. Bringing to their memory. Most of the stuff we don't understand, we let slip, right? If, if, how many of you would say you, that one English class that you really were underwater, you didn't understand it at all, but you remembered every bit of it? Right? No, the, the one class you really liked where the teacher seemed to lay it out for you, you got it. It worked for you. You remember that. So yes, these men are in great need of this helper to bring it all back, make sense of it all, so they can write it down. And then verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So he's basically ending the chapter the way it begins, but talking about peace. There's a difference between the, the culture and the world these Hebrews lived in, which was Greek. The way they looked at peace, which is really the way we look at peace, and the way the Hebrews looked at peace. Peace for the Greeks, especially the Romans, was essentially a negative. Not a negative thing like peace is bad, but negative in that it was the absence of war and strife. They had conquered the whole world at that time. The only time they would call peace is in the absence of war. And the God that they served, Janus, 
its temple doors would be shut during peace and open when there was war. Now, for the Hebrews, that's just totally different. For the Hebrews, it meant a positive blessing, especially in a right relationship with God. These were God's people. So to have peace or shalom, if you've been to the Holy Land, you hear it coming and going. It used to just be a greeting. And then after Christ and what he did, it was also a farewell. Because there is this peace between the Father and those that have sinned against him. The way this works, peace I leave with you, said by the man who was hours away from a cross where he would die, once for all, as the ultimate sin sacrifice to satisfy the promised wrath of his Father on the sins of the sinners, is by work of his death on the cross. That's what he means by his peace. It's not a peace between people. It's a peace between God and sinners. We want to look at peace as peace between people. We talk about peace in the Middle East. Or peace in the capital. Or just peace in the streets. We're still talking about people. This peace is a peace the world doesn't know about. And the world couldn't give if it wanted to. Because the world can't broker peace with a God over their sins. Something has to do that for them, which is Jesus. So when he says the world can't do this, he's saying the world can only give false peace. Under the curse, there's enough hatred, bitterness, malice, anxiety, fear to make sure that every attempt at peace ends in disaster between mankind. It always has and always will. If there's peace, it's, it's temporary. Sad to say. And from a biblical perspective, any attempt at peace short of dealing with the root of man's rebellion against his creator is doomed to failure. Unless, of course, you're talking about the basis of John 3.16, but more importantly, 17, right? Where Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. That's the peace that's been brokered between God and man. And you can understand why God in the Old Testament would spend lengthy discourses through his prophets chastising the false prophets and the false gods who would give rumors of peace that were only lies. Tell me if you think this fits anything you understand. This is Jeremiah 6. 13 through 15. For the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. This is, this is God's indictment on the leadership of his own chosen people. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. He's saying they've put a band-aid on their sin. And called it good or peace. It's okay when it's not. They've called evil good and good evil. And then goes on to say, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. 
Now, if you don't know how to blush anymore, how far gone, how eat up is that situation? It's pretty much hopeless. You know me, I don't really get but so political in this box. But does this fit what we see on TV? The lies have become so commonplace, there's no blush. They don't know how to if they wanted to. It's been desensitized like scar tissue. They've been talking about how they, if they're in charge, will give you what you need, peace, for so long when it's been a, a lie. There's no peace. We're more divided and aggravated and mad and caustic with each other than we've ever been. And the point here is this. We're getting our definition of peace mixed up. Why we're so upset with that is we look to that direction as citizens of the country we live in and say, I want peace and I expect peace. When Jesus told us plainly, It's not coming from there. They can't give it to you because they don't have it. We're all lost. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins except for salvation and a new birth. And to expect of lost people at war with God to be at peace with one another is the most foolish thing a Bible-believing person could ever do. So what we need to do is just pray. And say, well, what can I do about it? Starting in my own home. We'll start speaking kindly to one another there. Because we can. Because Jesus died for us. And he gave us his spirit to do it. And then we learn our Bibles as best we can. And then we preach them to other people. Not in little snippets so they don't get the whole picture. But from front to back. So it all makes sense. That's where we would start. Carson tells us this. It's his paragraph on... What's taking place. By his death, Jesus absorbs in himself the malice of others, the sin of the world, and introduces the promised messianic peace in a way none of his contemporaries had envisioned. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, was won and maintained by a brutal sword, and not a few Jews thought that the messianic peace would have to be secured by a still mightier sword. Instead, it was secured by an innocent man who suffered and died at the hands of Romans and of the Jews and of every last one of us. And by his death, he effected peace between God and those who he'd sinned against as the Prince of Peace. That's what this passage is brilliantly showing us. So what do we take home? And we'll transition to a baptism. Let me give you three, which is basically just a reverberation of where we've been. And the first is this, that the man that does not love God does not keep his commandments. And that's amplified in 1 John. You could say that backwards. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The man that doesn't love God won't keep his commandments. What is being said here that we should take home? Love in the Gospel of John written by the one Jesus loved, is not regarded as some abstract emotion. We want to say that John was more touchy-feely than the rest of them. Some people just don't get John because it's just too much about these feelings he's having. He's not talking about feelings at all. He says love 
equates in obedience. It's more than a feeling. It's intensely practical. A love that doesn't show itself in obedience is a flat love. Um, would you like a quick marriage counseling session? The dude that doesn't ever tell his wife that he loves her or has any feelings or does anything or wash any dishes but just sits on the couch and argues that he can't find the remote or whatever. That guy doesn't love her as far as she is concerned. Because she can't feel what's going on in his heart. It might be there. I'm not saying it's not. But he's going to have to somehow show it. And it's always going to be a struggle for him. He's never going to figure it out. But boy, the attempt is, is really there. He's kind of like uh, Evil Knievel. He gets paid for the attempt. Right? And we know if the attempt has been made. Now that's with normal, earthly relationships. Especially between a man and a woman. This is between God and man. He knows your heart. And He's not looking for sacrifice if there's problems between you. Right? Repentance. Obedience. Doing what you already know you're supposed to do by just the little that you do know. Forget what you haven't learned yet. Just be faithful with what you know. Intensely practical. It's a horrifying verse, really. One that, that if this is a medical exam, we've got work to do. Second, to have the Holy Spirit is to have a helper like Jesus himself. I don't know if, you've, if you thought your way through that just yet, but there's something we'll never have the experience of knowing like the disciples did, and that is to look into the eyes, the human eyes of Jesus of Nazareth. Get in a boat and go fishing with him. Watch him turn loaves and fish into food for a multitude. None of us had that opportunity. But then Jesus tells those guys that in his absence, he's going to send to them an equal helper. It won't diminish. You won't be without resources. In fact, it's greater because the greater works will be done. So Jesus is telling his disciples that he's going to give them what Paul tells us we've all been given. So if ever you thought, boy, what would it be like to have been with Jesus? The disciples would tell you, it's not much different than what you've got with the Holy Spirit. There's no excuse as far as, well, of course, Peter spent time with Jesus. If you're redeemed, you're spending time with the Holy Spirit. They're both God. They're not the same, but they're both God. And then number three, the peace of God is Christ's Legacy. That's what he leaves us. And uh, that's why that passage is read at funerals so often. Uh, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Father's house or many mansions. If it were not, I wouldn't have told you that. Go away to prepare a place. When I go, I'm coming back. I'm taking you with me. 
And then fast forward to the end of this paragraph, basically. Peace I leave with you. This is the man who said, Foxes have holes and birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. He didn't have anything. This is his last will and testament to these men. If Jesus is only going to leave one thing to the people he came to die for, don't you think it's probably going to be some reading of the will, right? It's peace that passes all understanding. How in the world do we get by or through a year like 2020, get through November with an election where everybody seems to hate each other, with cities burning, and in a place where you feel like you've got to be so careful with the words you use so that somebody doesn't dismantle you by those very words but used in a way that you didn't mean them. It doesn't feel like peace. In comparison, it's not supposed to. Because the real peace is the peace we have through Jesus. It's what Paul told Titus to tell that group of, of islanders that were so rough. When the grace and loving kindness of God appeared, He saved us. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy. And because of that washing and renewal of the Holy Spirit, we've got all the opposite of those things He said you used to be. You used to be foolish. You used to be backstabbing and warring. What did He say? Living your lives hated and hating one another. That's what it used to be. You've been changed. This is what Jesus is telling his men. And most of it goes for us. Now I don't think we get to pass our final exam to the tune that the apostles did when they wrote the New Testament. That was their final exam. I have to confess. I have used this verse in a Hail Mary prayer right before a Greek exam. And I've apologized since when I realized that's not what that verse was designed to do. <laughs> but the peace of God is still mine. No matter what we see on this planet, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit. And bequeathing to those you left alone your peace. We thank you for the work of the cross which squares us only through your righteousness that's not our own with your Father in heaven. Lord, seal this truth to our hearts. Make it live. May it change us. And may we be emboldened to tell others. Lord, for the one who's contemplating these things fresh or for the first time reveal yourself to them lord may they be given life to love and obey you lord we ask your blessing on what we're about to do following your command of baptism as the the second ordinance as we prepare for that we ask your blessing on our singing on our following you and on our dismissal we ask this in your name amen